Well, I suppose uh, at this point, I should probably reintroduce myself to the community. My name is Michael Krauss, and uh, believe it or not, I actually still work here. Uh, it's been a little while since I have been in this place doing this thing that we do uh, on Sundays. Actually, the way it worked out, immediately after our It Takes a Village series in July, my family and I loaded up the pop-up trailer and embarked on a 22-day camping adventure. We covered 10 states, 6,500 kilometers in 22 days, and absolutely had the time of our lives. We were on top of the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. Uh, we were in the uh, underground caverns underneath Louisville, Kentucky. We, uh, we ziplined through the forests. We whitewater rafted uh, in the mountain streams. We rode horses. We went to amusement parks. We saw black bears and bison. I mean, we just did drove through a solar eclipse like <laughs> we did everything on this trip and it was absolutely amazing it was a beautiful memory making kind of adventure and and there's a you know a, a, an irony as I reflect on it to the fact that while my family was off doing all of this Y'all were here, I'm still trying to work some of that Tennessee out of my soul, you know. Y'all were here having these conversations in this fruitful series, um, which kind of seem like conversations from the polar opposite end of the spectrum to what we were experiencing. We were experiencing all of the ways where you see the grandeur and the beauty and the mystery of God on display in creation, where it's easy to encounter the presence of God. Um, and you all were here having conversations about what it means to encounter the presence of God when your experiences in life are the exact opposite. How, how to discover divine joy in the midst of pain and chaos. How to discover divine peace in the midst of anxiety. How to discover a divine hope in the midst of hopelessness. The, the running theme in the three weeks of this series so far have all been having what it means to encounter the transformative presence of God when life is hard. Because the truth is that life is hard. It's, I think, uh, something that takes us by surprise some of the time. And so I think it's something worth saying out loud that even for those who have a faith in Jesus Christ, life is sometimes hard. We like to believe the opposite. We, we like to believe that as people who are you know, pursuing God and who want to become the people that God wants us to be, that for us, you know, that should somehow make life easier. In fact, the Bible even seems to teach something like that. In, in Proverbs chapter 8, or 11, in verse 8, it says this. The righteous person is rescued from trouble. And it falls on the wicked instead. Exactly true. That is the way life is supposed to be. Right? That if you're a person who's trying to live rightly with God and, and rightly with yourself and rightly with the people around you and rightly with the world, that, that that means that life should go well for you and the people who should struggle are people who are just bad people. 
that the righteous should be rescued from trouble. And you know what? The, the, this verse is often true. In fact, you could say it's generally true. That if you think about when you're at work, if you work hard, like when you, the point is if you live along the grain of how life is meant by God to be lived, then things go better for you. If you're at work and you work hard, work generally goes better for you. If you're in a relationship and you treat the person with dignity, equality, respect, and love, that relationship will go better for you. If you're, you know, think about your finances. If you live with prudence, wisdom, simplicity, and generosity, your economic situation should go better for you. That's in general, the way life works. But it's not always true. See, the scriptures also teach, it, the scholars call it a counter-testimony. There are other passages of scripture that seem to teach the exact opposite of this truth. And these scriptures are a way of balancing out our perspective, making sure that we don't draw too many hard and fast conclusions from a verse like Proverbs 8, 11, 8. There's a whole book in the Bible that's written for this purpose. It's the book of Job. Job is the poster child for Proverbs 11.8. Let, let me read this. Job chapter 1 verse 1. In the land of Uz, there was a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. And he had seven sons and three daughters. These are the blessings now that come. He had seven sons and three daughters and he owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys and he had a large number of servants and he was the greatest man among all the peoples in the east. Job was a God-fearing, God-loving man who had all of the blessings that are supposed to go along with that. He had wealth and health and life and relationships and a huge family and businesses and, uh, you know, his marriage and all, everything you would hope for until he didn't. Three chapters later, it's all gone. And the conclusion that Job draws about life in Job chapter 5 verse 7 is this. Yet man is born to trouble. People are born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upwards. Which is kind of an ironic way to say it because when I build the campfire the sparks tend to fly at my jeans. But that's, that's man is born to trouble as surely as the campfire smoke will eventually be in your face. That's what Job is saying is that if you're a human being, eventually your life is going to be a mess. That's, that's actually just the way that life is. And so we ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? But it's the wrong question. Bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things happen to all people. Good things happen to all people. It doesn't matter whether you're a good person or a bad person. You can fall in love and get married and have kids and have friends and get a career and make money. You can win the lottery, right? $800 million. I'm not saying she was a bad person. I'm just saying $800 million this week in Powerball in the States. Like, Good things happen to all kinds of people and bad things happen to all kinds of people because that's just life. Sometimes in life, you, you, just, you get a diagnosis. A physical or, or mental diagnosis. Sometimes the economy right sizes and your business downsizes and they choose to downsize you. Um, sometimes relationships just don't work out and you end up alone and sad and hurt and it's nobody's fault. It's just sometimes life happens. 
Sometimes we find ourselves experiencing pain because of other people's decisions, other people's sin, right? We, we, are, we find ourselves abused or mistreated, taken advantage of, abandoned, um, stabbed in the back. Sometimes it's our own sin, right? We make our bed and then we have to lie in it. The point is that faith doesn't make life easier. In fact, uh, in some ways, faith makes life harder. Our society is built in a way that, that favors or encourages people to try and find meaning in sex and money and power and popularity. But if you've chosen because of faith to live a life of fidelity and purity, a life of simplicity and generosity, a life of humility and servanthood, that cuts across the, the grain of the values of our society. And life, those are actually harder decisions to make. They can be painful decisions. Sometimes people reject folks because of their faith decisions. Because you won't do what we and the gang all used to do together. You won't come and do that anymore. Uh, or because um, I think your faith believes crazy things, or I think your faith makes you holier than thou, or whatever the case may be. Um, there's just a, the Bible says there's a power of evil at work in the world that specifically seeks to take out its vengeance on people who are trying to live with and for and like Jesus, who live lives of love. The, the, faith doesn't make life easier. But faith can make life better, even when it's hard. That's the point. I read a book a number of years ago. It was written by a New Testament scholar named Robert Goylick. Uh, and it was called The Critical Journey. And it was about the general shape of a journey of faith for most people. And I'm going to butcher it by oversimplifying it for you. But, but what Goylick says is that there are six stages of faith that people pass through. The first stage is called the recognition of God. It's the moment that you're awakened to the possibility of the divine. Uh, some of us grew up in homes of faith and our parents instilled that right from when we were young. But we still have those moments that feel like thin places where we feel like the curtain between heaven and earth is really thin. And we're in the presence of the divine. When you, you, know, when you watch a solar eclipse, which by the way, in 2024, the total solar eclipse of the sun will pass right over Niagara. Um, we saw it in Ohio. Ohio has no idea how to throw an eclipse. It was totally overcast. It was terrible. Um, but when you, you, know, you, you hold your, your firstborn child and you look into its eyes and you think, my gosh, there must be something more you know, than just me in this universe. You see a double rainbow. Whatever the thing is. You become awakened to the possibility of God. Stage two is called the life of discipleship. You find a community of faith that can help you understand and articulate and embody what a life of faith in the divine looks like. They teach you scriptures and they mentor and they model and they, they show you what it looks like to be a person of faith. Um, the third stage is called the, uh, a, part, a, participation, a life of participation. Um, 
where you realize that you're not just here to be a consumer and to take, but you've got something to give. And you all of a sudden, you know, through your own activity, become involved in the community of faith and walking other people through their spiritual journeys. You become a leader, you become a volunteer, you serve, you, you get involved in the life of the community. Those are the first three stages of faith and they're often filled with enthusiasm and exuberance and, and momentum and it feels like you're growing. But here's the point, stage four, Goylek calls the inward journey. And stage four is those moments in life when everything falls apart. When often triggered by a life crisis, you know, the circumstantial life crisis, excuse me, and the circumstantial life crisis, an emotional crisis, a relational crisis, a, a life stage crisis, an intellectual crisis, something um, triggered by a life crisis, you end up in a faith crisis. And all of a sudden your prayers seem to hit the ceiling and God seems nowhere to be found and, and all the answers you had before now don't seem to be appropriate answers anymore. In fact, you've got more questions than answers and now you grapple with doubt and you're frustrated and you're angry at God because the faith that you had been living uh, because of your circumstances just doesn't seem to work anymore. And if you've never been in that kind of situation, buckle up because it's coming. If you've been in that kind of situation, I don't even have to describe for you what it feels like. You feel like you're going backwards. You feel like you're losing your faith. You feel like you're losing your mind. And Goelig's point is none of those things are true. What's actually happening at that moment is you are growing through the next stage of maturity in your faith. You are moving forward in maturity at a rate that you have probably never moved forward before. You are growing like crazy, but it doesn't feel like it. And here's my point. According to Robert Goylek, and in my experience would bear this out, and we've kind of built our church in, in some ways around these ideas. Um, you can't get to stages five and six without passing through a stage four. Um, your what God does in your life when your life is a mess is absolutely critical to him growing a fruitful faith in your life. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying that God has made your life a mess so that he can teach you an exciting new life lesson. That's, that's not what I'm saying. God doesn't cause cancer and God doesn't cause famines, and God isn't the author of racism, and God doesn't create droughts, and he doesn't cause people to go hungry, and he doesn't, death is not from God. God is the God of life. And to say that God has caused these things, either directly or indirectly by allowing them, is to make God the author of evil, and that is not what the scriptures say. In James chapter 1, and verse 17, it says this, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows. It is impossible to imagine calling cancer or rape or, you know, starvation or whatever, a, a good gift from the Father of lights. God doesn't give these gifts. What God does do is he joins us in the midst of the mess that our life sometimes is, in the pain of our circumstance, and he redeems them in a way that is good and beautiful. Right? In the same chapter, 
James says this in verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith by trial, by messy life circumstances, by painful circumstances, that produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. He says, consider it joy when your life falls apart. He doesn't mean be happy about it, but what he's saying is consider it joy. Embrace the fact, the possibility that while your life is falling apart, this may be the very moment that God is going to use to do something good and beautiful in your life. To make you more faithful. In the Greek language, the word faith has a number of connotations um, that are all, I think, relevant to talking about what it means to become faithful in the midst of our painful circumstances. Faith means you know, belief and conviction. When you're going through those difficult times, wrestling with the questions and the doubts and the frustrations, those are the moments when, a, when we find ourselves adopting a brand new perspective on who God is and on about what life is about, what's worth it and what's not, and who we are and our perspective, our beliefs about God shift in those times. Faith means trust. And it's in those moments that we learn to trust that God knows what he's doing. That we learn to trust that God is with us and that God is for us. That God has joined us in the midst of our circumstance. That God knows how to bring redemption and resurrection into the midst of our circumstance. We learn how to trust and keep going. It's in the midst of those circumstances. The third definition of faith is faithfulness. It's there that we learn to be faithful. We learn devotion. We learn obedience. We learn how to live more as God's person, more like Jesus Christ, to live that life of loving God and loving ourselves and loving each other and loving the world even when times are hard. It's in those moments, James says, that God does some of his most powerful work in growing us into the people he wants us to be. In, um, in 2007, my mom suddenly discovered that her brain and her mouth weren't always cooperating. Uh, my brain and my mouth don't always cooperate either, but that's usually because my foot gets in the way. Um, but for her... She would have crystal clear thoughts in her head and her mouth would refuse to articulate them into words. Or when she was able to attempt to articulate her thoughts, um, her sentences came out as jumbled nonsense. She thought she was having a series of mini strokes. Tests showed that she had what's called glioblastoma melanoma. She had a, a brain tumor, the same kind of cancer that John McCain has, the same kind of cancer that Gordon Downey has. It is untreatable and uncurable. And the surgeon did a, a surgery to cut out as much as he could to buy her some time. And he left the operating room and told us as a family that my mom had a year to live. And 365 days later, she was dead at 64 years of age. Losing my mom threw my spirit into a faith crisis. I mean, it was precipitated by the pain of just grief. I don't care who you are. 
or who your mom was or wasn't or what kind of relationship you had or didn't have with your mom. When you lose your mom, it throws your spirit into chaos because of the fundamental connection you have to who she is. This woman who carried you and birthed you and, um, and was the source of who you are for better and for worse. And if it doesn't break something inside of you, then something inside of you may already be broken. But I just experienced the chaos of the pain of grief. But at a deeper level, I experienced the chaos of asking the question of why good things, bad things happen to good people. Because my mom was compassionate and kind and generous and hospitable. And she radiated Jesus in so many ways to so many people. And why does someone like that die at 64? It threw my spirit into chaos as a parent. You see, the one thing that my mom always wanted in life that she never had was a daughter. She only had sons. And so her solution to this dilemma was grandchildren. And uh, I and, and my brothers, um, we gave her seven granddaughters. My mom only ever met three of them. My kids, I, I have four daughters. And my kids were two and one when my mom died. She never even met two of them. My mom never got to be a grandma to her granddaughters and her grandsons. She's got some pretty awesome grandsons. And my daughters never got to have my mom as a grandma. And that made no sense to me that that's the way life would be. And it the experience of my mom dying profoundly impacted my understanding of faith. See, um, I've taken a bajillion personality tests in the course of my lifetime, and they all share this common theme, which will be no surprise to anybody who's known me more than five minutes or who has even been listening for more than five minutes um, or five minutes total up till this point, just to be generous. Um, <laughs> I like to learn things. I love learning. Knowledge is power. And I'm an insatiable learner. And for me, I focus so much of my learning on faith and scripture and history and theology and church. And um, I just, I live my life in my mind. Very cognitive person. The most recent personality profiling that I did was the, called the Enneagram and, and the Enneagram says that people like me who live so much in our heads we do this and, and I'm owning this and confessing this at this moment we do this for insecurity reasons because we're afraid that we're probably not all that competent at life and if information is power the more I learn about the world the more I give my sense that myself the sense that I can control it and and then maybe I can feel safe enough to risk actually trying to live it but in general people who live in their heads are detached and they try to be objective because they don't want to risk actually getting involved in life and then your mom dies and you just kind of get thrown in the deep end of having to deal with life. You don't get to do that in your head. I mean, how does a person who values understanding understand something that can't be understood, right? My system was on overload. How do you remain detached and objective uh, when your whole world has become a world of emotion and grief? You can't do it. 
I, something about the grieving process broke the person that I was. And in the process of grieving my mom, let me tell you what happened. I discovered that my faith was all about knowing about God. But God isn't a riddle to be solved and he is not an idea to understand. God is a mystery and a presence who envelops us and who envelops our lives in love and who is with us in the midst of whatever, including our pain. I went from a faith, and I'm still in transition, but from having a faith that is about knowing about God to having a faith that is rooted in being known by God. And the same was true in my relationship with other people. In living through my own pain, I suddenly discovered other people's pain. I discovered the power of empathy. I discovered what it means to feel with somebody in what they are going through. Someone, I, I found a bit of my humanity. Somebody said to me recently that in the last number of years, my preaching has changed and they're not quite sure why. And I, I don't know either whether it has or whether that's been good or bad. But I suspect one change in my preaching in the last number of years is that I am much more human uh, and much less of an ideas generator than I used to be. That journey inward of the pain of losing my mom changed me and my life and my faith. It moved me towards maturity. That's what God does. He makes us more faithful in those moments. And so how do we let God do that? That's the question. And so I'll close by saying two things. Number one, you have to stay engaged. Um, The temptation is to run away from the pain, to run away from the faith crisis, to run away from the questions and the doubts and the frustration, right? We we run away by uh, denial, by just pasting on a happy smile and saying, well, you know, everything happens for a reason and God has a plan. We pretend that it doesn't hurt. Or, Uh, We retreat to kind of an earlier stage of faith. We try to just press on being the person we were and doing the faith the way we always did. We can't do that because we're not that person anymore. Or the way we uh, fail to deal with it is by anger. You sort of plop yourself down and you get bitter at God and at people and at the church. And we know, every one of us know people for whom life has just made them bitter. Or you just, you run away from faith. Right? You become the kind of person who said, well, I tried Jesus and Jesus didn't work for me. If you want to encounter the transformative presence of God in the midst of your pain, you have to commit to staying engaged with the pain, with the circumstances, with your faith. In fact, going back to James, James says, consider pure joy when you face trials because if you let perseverance do its work, you will become mature. The link between the pain and the turmoil and the maturity is perseverance. That's the thing that makes the link. The word in Greek means to stay or remain or to live or to dwell beneath the weight of your circumstances. To stay there to live there, and to do the work of healing, the work of being honest about your pain, about 
the fact that your life sucks right now, being honest about the questions, being honest about the doubts, being honest about the frustrations, being honest about the fears that you're losing your mind or you're losing your faith or that you're somehow losing yourself. But you have to stay engaged and stay connected and be honest and be committed to working through it honestly. The second thing is you have to stay connected. You have to stay connected to God. It's amazing to me. The very next verse, James says, be glad about the trials because if you persevere, you'll grow. The very next verse is this, James 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. James says, if you're going to make this journey from trial through perseverance to growth, you need to stay connected to God. You need to stay connected in prayer. You need to talk to God about what's going on in your life. And it's maybe the hardest thing to do. To be angry at God and to talk to him about your questions and your doubts and your frustrations. And if, if you don't have the words to know how to do that, then go to the middle of your Bible to the book of Psalms, which is a book of prayers that other people have prayed and written down. People who were inspired by God to share their prayers so that other people could pray those prayers too and find the words to express to God what's going on in their spirit. And just commit to praying one of those prayers every single day. And you know what you discover? Three quarters of the prayers written in the book of Psalms are prayers of frustration and anger and criticism and lament and disappointment with God because life isn't turning out the way you thought it would and somewhere in there you will find the words to, to articulate what's in your heart and you'll realize that it's okay to be brutally honest and even angry at God if you're going to keep talking. One of my favorite prayers in the Psalms is Psalm 88. And I can summarize it like this. Dear God, my life is a mess. You don't care. You're ignoring me and I want to die. Amen. It's funny, even in the book of Job, most of the book of Job is Job criticizing God because God allowed his life to be a mess. And at the end of the book, God says that Job never once sinned in all of his words. And at least one reason is because God wants us to keep talking to him honestly about what's going on in our life. James says we should pray. And it's funny, he doesn't say you should pray that God would resolve your situation, which you can do, and that's fine. But he says you should pray for wisdom. That you would know how to be in the midst of your circumstances. That you know how to see God that you'd know how to hear him, that you'd know how to be patient, that you'd know how to persevere. You should pray for wisdom to know how to be in the midst of your circumstance so that God can grow you through them to being a more faithful person. Stay connected to God, stay connected to people. And this is just as hard because people are uncomfortable with your pain. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to answer your questions. They don't know how to process your doubts. They are bothered by your anger towards God. And people will say that you're losing your faith and you're not. And people will say that you're backsliding and you're not. And people will be worried about your, that you're moving backwards when you're actually moving forwards. And they'll try to find ways to shut down your pain because it makes them uncomfortable. And if they can't shut it down, they may walk away. But what you need to find is a group of people who are safe enough for you to be honest. 
Be honest about your life, honest about your pain, honest about your questions, honest about your doubts, honest about your frustrations. People who will listen to you and not judge. People who will be present to you and with you in the midst of it. People who will walk with you faithfully. People who will, in wisdom, help you see God in the midst of your circumstances. People who will help you see what God is doing in you. People who can help you journey towards the person that Jesus is making you to be. People who are a healing presence in your life. That's how the pain and the chaos we endure in perseverance and it becomes faithfulness for us. I mentioned thin places before. Read an article recently that said suffering is a thin place. That in the midst of our pain, the curtain between heaven and earth gets very thin. And in ways that we sometimes don't even recognize at the time, we can find ourselves encountering the transformative presence of God in ways that are not imaginable in ordinary, everyday life. May God give us the faith to see him and to hear him and to see what he's doing in our lives in the midst of the pain and the chaos and the hurt that we find ourselves in. Let's pray together. God, it makes no sense to be dishonest about life to say that everything works out in the end or to say that everything has a happy, smiley ending or that somehow everything pulls together for some you know, larger purpose. I, instead, what makes sense is to acknowledge that in Jesus Christ, you have entered into our pain. That on the cross, Jesus died he carried our pain to the cross. And in the resurrection comes the hope that there is something life-giving that comes out of the pain, that comes through the pain. Would you give us the faith to trust you that you are leading us towards yourself even in the midst of the hardest times in our life. Would you give us the eyes to see you, to see what you're doing, to see your kingdom coming, and to hang on, um, to hang on to see the fruit of your life in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.